But if you would open your Bibles to Psalm 89, Psalm 89, we'll be spending our time this evening in verse 4. Psalm 89, verse 4. Uh, Before we begin, let's pray. Father God, we give you thanks and praise that you are a God of revelation and that you are a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. Father, we confess that we do not see your glory as we should because of our sin because of our divided loyalties. And so help us to clear away the clutter that we may behold Christ Jesus, our precious Savior and our eternal King, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, you may have uh, heard of the name Rudy Rudiger. Rudy Rudiger. He is a man who has a life story that is an incredible story about commitment. In fact, it's such a compelling story that he sold it to Hollywood, and they made a movie about him called Rudy. Now, this movie is about his dream to play football at Notre Dame, which he himself claims is 92% true uh, to his actual story. And the hitch is that Rudy was badly mocked for this dream because he was only five foot six, 165 pounds, and a really poor academic. So it not only seemed like a foolish dream, but an impossible one. But Rudy doesn't give up. He is steadfastly committed to this dream to play football. He wouldn't listen to his friends. He wouldn't listen to his family. And through it all, his resolve paid off. He gains acceptance to Notre Dame. He actually makes the football team. And he becomes the first person in Notre Dame football history to be carried off the field after a victory. If you saw the movie, The World Loved Rudy. It was a box office hit. Now, there is no comparison, of course, to be made between Rudy and God when it comes to commitment, but it is a small human example of what we find in the Bible, which is the story of God's unwavering commitment to his promises. And tonight, we get an entry point into that unwavering commitment with our verse this evening, which again is Psalm 89, verse 4. So we're going to read it together. So if you have your Bibles open there, we're just going to read verses 1 through 4 together. A mascal of Ethan, the Ezraite. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. Our verse for tonight. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Well, God's commitment to his promises are bound up in his steadfast love and his faithfulness, both of which are mentioned two times, each in verses 1 and 2, which come in front of God's reaffirmation to his promise that he would establish an eternal kingdom through the bloodline of David. 
So if I were to give you a compact and concise main point in my own words for verse 4 tonight, it would be this, that God is unwavering in his commitment to make Jesus an eternal king over an eternal kingdom. One more time, God is unwavering in his commitment to make Jesus an eternal king over an eternal kingdom. And out of that commitment, we are going to see three realities established in its fulfillment. So reality number one, God's covenant commitment establishes the king. God, God's covenant commitment establishes the king. In verse four, it simply says, I will establish your offspring forever. And in verse three, we see that God is talking directly to David. This is a promise that God made to David. And this is one of the reasons why that the Davidic king had to be human. He had to be a descendant of David. Now, what's striking to me is that when we come to these realities as Christians, I'm reminded on, on how so easily we are impressed with inspiring movies like Rudy. But when it comes to the realities of God's covenant commitment, somehow the vastness of it, the, the realities of his unwavering commitment and faithfulness, the sweetness of it all can be lost on us to varying degrees. And we know we walk away from it feeling it like it doesn't hit us like it should. And the privilege is just simply staggering. The promise of an eternal offspring is the thread that goes through the heart of all, all of God's promises, patiently weaving its way through time as God's steadfast love slowly and faithfully finds its fulfillment. And we happen to live in an epoch of time where that fulfillment is clear, realized in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so we should be very impressed by God for it all. He does everything. He says, I will establish your offspring forever. He is the one who builds the throne. He is the author of salvation. It is God's idea and Jesus himself is the finisher of our faith he brought it all to bear by taking on our likeness by becoming a man and our only contribution to it all is our sin and this is why we call it grace and this is why we pay homage to Jesus as king that's what this worship service is it's a homage to our king a public demonstration of honoring him for his majesty, his wisdom, and his deep love for his people? So are you impressed? Does this impress you? Are you like the queen of Sheba? When she heard about the wisdom of Solomon, she just had to see it for herself. So she traveled a long distance. And when she gets there, she says the, the half of it hadn't been told to her. Solomon's wisdom surpasses everything, the report that she heard. And she pays homage to King Solomon for his wisdom. So is that why you're here tonight? Is that why you came this morning as you were driving down St. Charles Street, heading here? Were you with the Queen of Sheba in your heart? Were you excited to come to your king to worship him? And how about the children? There's some children here tonight. Did you just follow your parents in obedience? Is that why you're here? Did you come here just to hang out with your friends? We don't want you to miss it either. 
We don't want you to come here week after week, month after month, year after year, only to miss the glory of King Jesus. And that's why we don't come to church empty-handed, because Jesus is a king. This is also why a consumer retail approach to church is so out of place. This church is not here for you. It will serve you, but it is not here for you. It is here to serve our king. That doesn't mean you don't get something out of it or from him. Of course you do, and you should. And it doesn't mean that there's something wrong with coming here out of neediness. We are a needy people. We need the shelter of our king. But it is about the priority of what is in your heart. Is it the highest cry of your heart to be in the presence of the king because he alone is worthy? Is that what drives you to scripture when you read your Bible? Is it his beauty? Is it his majesty? Is it his greatness? Are those the things that drive you to your knees when you pray? So why did you come here? What was the motive that brought you here tonight? You are here. We're glad that you're here. But we think that we could excel in doing better than just showing up, and that starts with being honest with ourselves. If we're honest with ourselves, we might admit that there are things that we wrongly pay homage to. If your private thoughts for the week prior were condensed into a two-hour movie and we played it up on this big screen for everybody to watch, would everybody walk away and say, now that's a person that pays homage to the king. What would they see? What would everybody say about you? Would it even look Christian? Point number two, God's covenant commitment establishes an authority. God's covenant commitment establishes an authority. Looking at the second half of the verse, God still speaking to David says, I will build your throne for all generations. A throne is a seat of power, and that makes God's throne the highest place of supreme authority in all of the universe, in every realm beyond. Jesus is control. He reigns over all things. That's why the church praises him in the good and in the bad. They both come from his hand, and that's why his church doesn't get swept over into fear as the world around us falls apart or our freedoms are threatened or our health declines. Jesus is sovereign over America. He is sovereign over your personal life too, and he is in control of all the affairs of men. So we don't cower when the kingdom of man is under threat, and we don't cower when our lives are at risk because the kingdom of God is not established by human struggle but it is established by God's unwavering commitment to his promises. Of course, fallen man doesn't quite see it that way. The natural disposition of our heart opposes the authority of God. And that's why there can be no neutral ground with Jesus. His authority divides and creates struggles. Struggles for the Christian. We do struggle. We have a struggle of the heart that vacillates from the conviction that obedience to Jesus will bring me my highest good and greatest joy 
versus the temptation to sin, which promises greater joy but never delivers. So it's easy to come and go from church and still live in self-rule. Everyone here tonight, myself included, lives inside the struggle of of self-worship. I do what I want, when I want, however I want, with whom I want, and you must follow to the beat of my drum. That is the idol of the day. So whether you're Christian or not, that's the person who's living inside of you. That's what your heart is made of, and that's what the flesh is all about, self-rule. But the authority of Christ demands that you give it up in exchange for obedience to the gospel. And the stakes are high. The stakes couldn't be higher because Jesus, who is king, is also judge. He is the judge of all things, and so his throne not only represents his sovereign rule, but it is also a judgment seat. It is where every person will stand to give an account of himself to God for the life that he or she has lived And that applies to both Christians and unbelievers alike. Of course, the outcomes are radically different. For the Christian, by faith in Christ and by the atoning blood of the cross, they receive a crown of glory and enter into God's eternal rest. But for the unbeliever, for someone who is not trusting in Christ, they enter into the condemning wrath of God. This is ultimately how the authority of Jesus divides sheep to the right goats to the left and the only difference between the two groups is how they respond to the authority of Christ and his gospel so how you handle the authority of Christ now in this life is the most important matter you will ever face it's not your job or who you marry or who you'll be when you grow up It's not your reputation, where you live, but it's about how you handle the authority of Christ. That is the supreme issue of life because without the shelter of the king, we are all without hope. But this is not what he wants for us. This is why he first came in peace, which leads us to our third and final point. God's covenant commitment establishes a clear hope. God's covenant commitment establishes a clear hope. This king is different. This king is different. He is not like the kings that we see from the kingdom of men over the course of history. When Jesus first comes, he doesn't come in pomp as a warrior king seeking glory for himself. That comes, but that's for later. He comes in humility And he comes in peace, riding on a donkey, not to kill and conquer, but to be killed, to give his life up willingly as a ransom that he might secure something greater. An eternal throne and an eternal kingdom with an eternal people who worship him for who he is. The day of judgment will come, but for now the king invites you to take shelter under his wings to be covered by his blood so that you will be able to stand on that day of judgment when it comes. That's what he wants for you. We desperately don't want you to throw that away. It is the golden ticket. It is the privilege of a lifetime. 
Don't throw it away in favor of your sin and your unbelief because you think you have tomorrow. You don't know when you will stand before the judgment seat of God. Don't let unbelief and foolish thinking cause you to end up into the hands of an angry God because you think you can decide tomorrow. I want to speak to you younger people who are here tonight and anyone who isn't believing in Christ or anyone who is unsure about whether or not they are saved. You know that a dead heart can't give itself life. You know that deadness has no power to do anything. So what is a person to do with their dead heart? How can a dead heart possibly make a, resp a right response to Jesus as king? Well, there are many wiser men than myself that have answered that question. I would direct your hearts to listen to J.I. Packer. Listen to him in his words. This is what he says, and I quote, Look to Christ. Cry to Christ just as you are. Confess your sin, your arrogance, your unbelief, and cash yourself on his mercy. Ask him to give you a new heart, working in you true repentance and firm faith. Ask him that you may never henceforth stray from him, turn to him and trust him as best as you can. End quote. That's what you do. You do it now and you don't wait. You keep pursuing him. Keep using the same means of grace that we all have access to. Keep reading your Bible. Keep striving to obey it. Keep asking Jesus for help. Keep churning from your sin. If you continually do those things, I promise you that over time, you will come to know whether or not you are truly a Christian. Now, for all of us who happen to be trusting in Christ, his throne takes on a whole new meaning. Not only is it a throne of sovereign rule, but for the Christian who is covered by the blood of the Lamb, it is a throne of grace. Not only is it a judgment seat, but it is also a mercy seat. And we come to the mercy seat in the fullness of confidence. We come to the mercy seat in the fullness of confidence. And this is exactly why Psalm 89, verse 4 is here. I don't mean here in the general sense like it's in the Bible, but I mean specifically here in this place at the end of book 3 of the psalm, particularly after Psalm 88, which I would argue is the lowest point in all of Scripture. You should go and read it in your quiet time if you haven't read, if you haven't read Psalm 88. 88 lately, but know this, the psalmist in Psalm 88 feels forgotten by God, totally rejected by him, totally rejected by all of his friends, and totally consumed in darkness. And this is this not hyperbole. This is in the Bible. And what's worse and unique to Psalm 88 is that there is no hope offered. All you get is this prayer, this cry to God that seemingly goes unanswered. So if there was ever a place in Scripture where we needed the reminder of God's steadfast love and faithfulness to his promises, it's right here in Psalm 89, 
verse 4. This is how you handle your sorrow and your suffering. You take it to the Lord and you preach his goodness to your heart. That's why Psalm 88 is followed up with this beautiful verse. That you might know joy. Joy to the fullest, even in your worst moment in this life. Even in the face of death. So if you don't know God's promises very well, you have a starter. You have our verse for tonight. That's where you start. And get to work. Make a list of God's promises. Start building one. Pop it into your Bible. Or put it in some place that's easy, easily accessible so that you can learn to meditate on God's promises and so that you can learn to preach them to your heart like the psalmist does for us here in Psalm 89, verse 4. Let's pray. Father God, you are a God of grace. We see your unwavering commitment. We see your steadfast love. And we see your faithfulness in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Help all who are refusing him to change their way. Give them new hearts that they may turn to Christ and help your people to preach this way as the psalmist shows us that we might be a people filled with joy and hope regardless of whatever you may bring our way that we may glorify your son that we may behold him and see him for we for who he is and it's in Christ's name we pray amen